Hello everyone, it's August 30th, 2022. So with the Artemis 1 only maybe days away, why not talk about SpaceX and the Falcon 9 booster that almost didn't make it back to port last December? Well, that's what we're going to do. It's a no Artemis show, maybe the last one for a while, so let's talk about anything else and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 374 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. And I'm Dennis. And no Ben this week. So you were out a couple weeks ago now, uh, Ben. He's feeling a little bit under the weather, so... Mm. Yeah, I was going to say, haven't we commented that they, they seem to cluster like this before? Yep. Yeah, <laughs> so, they definitely do. No big deal. So, yeah, the first time you encounter one person being out, then you can rest assured someone else will be. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm next, but I don't know. I'm feeling fine. <laughs> Knock on wood. Hang in there. For top of the show news, um, you had mentioned before we started recording that there wasn't too many stories as far as space. There was the one involving T-Mobile and Starlink, which didn't seem too interesting or not very space-related. But uh, mm-hmm. I have to say, I you know just I mean I I read about this a couple of days ago and I thought it was pretty interesting. Maybe because I have T-Mobile, so that's mm-hmm. like a service that maybe I might be able to use. But it seems pretty interesting that Starlink is finding a niche as well with the mobile service providers of the world, or at least this one. And I think it's because T-Mobile is giving them some of its spectrum. I think that's what's going on. There was some kind of a deal between T-Mobile. I mean, like, obviously there's a deal, but there's a uh, something a little bit more to do with um, how the spectrum is allocated. So mm. I guess Starlink needed certain portion of spectrum and T-Mobile said, hey, we have that. So maybe we can work together. Um, and I think that's what, you know, caused this. But what's interesting is, I mean, and I don't know much, I just was reading briefly about it, is it apparently... Um, eventually, this is a bit further down the road. Starlink is supposed to be providing, um, like actual, like at first it starts off with just text and pics or something like that. Like that's all that you can get through Starlink, at least from your mobile device communicating directly with a satellite. But eventually they're going to move to, you know, like actual voice calls, but that's going to require the newer version of Starlink, which you can't put on Falcon 9s and that will require Starship. The newer Starlinks will have something like 25 square metered antennas or something, like something big. Yes. Yeah, I definitely saw that too, which is kind of scary. People were talking about how much new metal is going to just be dumped into the upper atmosphere and potentially unforeseen consequences of that. But but just... Uh, what do you maybe think of real quick is um like like you're saying yeah so so Starlink version twos will primarily fly on starships and we're previously going to exclusively fly in it but I believe recently SpaceX announced that they will still use some Falcon nines to accommodate some of the Starlink version two loads. I don't think it's um I think it's a different Starlink so um really? it's a gonna... downsized second generation called a Starlink V two mini. So a mini version oh, because hmm. the full version is he said, at least according to Musk, that they can't even fit inside a, a Falcon 9 fairing. Like they're just too big. Ah. So that's going to require Starship. Thank you. Yeah, I guess I, I didn't drill too deep into that. And I had just seen that they were talking about the mix for version twos. And I assumed the version twos were really big and maybe they would only launch a few at a time on Falcon 9s. But yeah, if they can't stick a single one on a Falcon 9, then I guess, huh. Starlink 2 minis. Interesting. That's not something that's, you know, necessarily being developed, but they're uh-huh. considering it. So maybe it kind of like a little intermediary between V1 and V2, sort of a V2 mini that, yeah, they can maybe fit on a Falcon 9. And yeah, and, and it wasn't, I didn't want to feel like I was saying so much that the story is just not interesting. I, I think it is kind of a, a big deal, but just that it's not super space flighty for me, you know, yes. <laughs> to be our main news. Uh, oh, for yeah. sure. Yeah. But yeah. No, I mean, it's, 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 it's really things like this that always make me want to not consider um, people's business cases or people's predictions about launch vehicles and other stuff in space flight as 
uh, uh, done deals. These kind of things come out of nowhere and just totally mm -hmm. change the landscape of, okay, well, Starlink, right? I mean, Starlink had some, some uh, funding uh, basically withdrawn because they weren't getting the signal strength in these rural areas that this uh, grant or whatever kind of money they had gotten from the government uh, needed them to basically keep hitting these or reach these high rates of it. And so, so it's like, okay, well, yeah, sure, that's one thing, but this is a whole different thing now that's happening where they're going to be synergized with T-Mobile and maybe that opens up all sorts of new business opportunities and makes you know, Starlink an even better business case than it necessarily was before because some people were skeptical about that there. And so there's just such a, a winding road and these kind of events come out of nowhere and surprise you. And so this is a very big deal. And also the size of them is just dramatic, which I'm, <laughs> I don't like that, but uh, obviously, but yeah. Yeah. Well, you said that, that people are worried about a lot of metal being dumped into the upper atmosphere. Do you mean once they're deorbited? Yeah. If they have the nominal, like I think five-ish year lifetime and just the amount of uh, this is just right one constellation we're talking about. And so if you kind of assume some levels of different scalings where, okay, that would require this many satellites to be replenished every year. And you can just start coming up with however many tons of uh, uh, aluminum and whatever other kind of metals are on these that are going to be deposited into the upper atmosphere because, right, they don't, it's not nuclear physics, right? The, the, the mm -hmm. atoms still retain their uh, identity when they disintegrate and burn up in the upper atmosphere. And uh, CFCs famously responsible for the ozone hole. Could there be something that would surprise us where this sort of bad kind of catalyst happens? I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I obviously don't know chemistry all that well. Um, and I don't know about uh, metals in particular and their uh, interest in uh, interacting with things. But I mean, right, there's a lot of metal oxides we talk about all the time. So what's going to happen when you form, I mean, would you form a lot of aluminum oxide in the atmosphere? Does that change the chemistry up there in any meaningful way? I just, I don't know. And I don't think anybody knows. So we haven't talked about SpaceX as far as the main topic in some time. Well, we just did at the top of the show, but let's also talk about them again. Um, specifically, let's talk about one of their Falcon 9 boosters, that is B-1069. And I don't know, bad memory, I don't know if we talked about it back in December, but it did launch previously back in December, and it was a successful flight. This was for CRS-24. But the interesting part of this whole story is uh, what happened to the booster once it landed, and... Um, that's kind of what we're going to be covering. So um, this had a nominal landing on uh, the drone ship, JRTI, or just read the instructions, or I don't know if people call it Journey, but that's kind of what I read when I see it. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, so it encountered apparently some bad weather. Um, I guess no one's really sure, um, but I feel like a, like a decent weather report would tell you that. I think there were rough seas reported at the time, so it's certainly consistent with, with bad with rough weather. Yeah. And so what happened was it landed. And, and this happened before, prior to the Octograbber being featured on these landings. So a problem that uh, SpaceX had back in the earlier days was that uh, the booster would touch down. And then as it is coming back to port because of rough seas or high winds or whatever, the booster would actually kind of like walk its way around, mm. which is a terrifying thought. Because to me, I'm thinking, could that tip over? Probably not. I guess it has a like a pretty wide base so it would take some pretty bad seas in order to get to tip over but it will walk around and i guess if one of those legs does go over the edge because there's a little railing but if it just happens to come up 
on one leg and go over the edge, then maybe it actually could go overboard. Or, or if it bursts through the railing, which it looked in this case to try to burst through. <laughs> yeah, it apparently uh, ran into uh, the railing at the edge of the ship, which is a good thing that they have that, you know, that they thought through on that. But yeah, so... The damage, which, um, you know, we'll have uh, a link in the show notes for some pretty good photos. The damage was pretty extensive, and which is why I'm kind of surprised that maybe we hadn't mentioned it because okay. I don't remember seeing these photos. There was like some damage to the legs, and then there was a lot of damage to the engine nozzles, and they looked really torn up. Mm. It looked like the booster touched down and then just kind of like slammed its base into. Uh, the deck, which I don't think is what happened, but it looks like that. Like they're kind of like all mangled. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's just one or two or three. It looks like almost all of them are pretty well dinged up. And, and I think what the theory is, I don't know, this is just my theory, is that it was probably when the Octograver was trying to secure it, it kind of banged into it. So I'm guessing that maybe that stage, it started to walk a little bit, like I said. Mm. And that's when it kind of, you know, grinded into something, probably the Octograver. That was my guess too, is that, yeah, it, it was contact probably with the Octograver, which does have little parts and bits of it sticking up a little bit even though it's roughly flat it's not you know it's not perfectly flat and so there are things i guess that could be contacted and i think that there was also damage to the octograver uh that's what the article said so basically Mm -hmm. everything got damaged so (laughs) everything got damaged yeah stuff was just being shoveled around shout out to uh derek wise um who had some really incredible high resolution images of it uh, yeah. Back in December. Clearly something on the Octograpper was too high and or the booster was too low and those engine nozzles just kind of got torn up and ground up by the Octograpper. Mm. Um, and then a leg walked its way all the way or the whole thing walked to the edge of, to the edge of the pad there and tore up the railing like Almost went through it, right? So it's basically kind of like a little I-beam that runs the edge of the platform and it pushed one section of the I-beam kind of like at a 45 degree angle. So it almost knocked it over. And I feel like, you know, one more bad wave perhaps or something, and it could have flattened it and then just went right over the edge there. It really reminds me of when you see guardrails on a highway after an accident where they get pretty Mm -hmm. roughed up uh, sometimes, sometimes much worse than what, you know, what happened here, but it still kept the vehicle on the road or at least not, you know, down into whatever ditch or off whatever cliffs that the guardrail is there for. So it definitely has a very guardrail vibe to me. And well, and what's interesting, look at the photo, right? So the octograbber still looks to be underneath it. So it was moving with the octograbber. Is that what's going on? Or yeah, I mean, that yeah. has to be right. Yeah. Yeah. The whole, the whole system went, went for a, for a little trip to the very corner of the ship. <laughs> so would this suggest uh, that maybe the Octograbber sort of programmed to find it and lock on and it kept moving and it was like, get back here and it kind of followed it over to the edge and, you know, the whole time it's also kind of like mangling it up too. Like it was kind of like chasing it around. Yeah, I don't, good question. Because if it had a hold, the ship, or at least I assume, you know, the booster would not have moved. So we wouldn't have had that problem. And if it didn't have a grasp on it, then the Octograbber should have stayed put. Is it, and, and this is my own just ignorance about SpaceX and Octograbber, is it possible that the winds were so bad and the, or the, and the sea was, right, because you got the ship probably tilting and, you know, heaving to and fro, um, that mm-hmm. the Octograbber, yeah, got dragged with, like, the Oct- Octograbber did its job right, <laughs> but there was just so much uh, torque on the Falcon 9 that it was dragging the Octograbber along with it. And then in the process, since it's not designed to be doing that, it was banging into Octograbber bits that it normally shouldn't uh, that shouldn't be an issue. I don't know. Both of those work. <laughs> as 
as hypotheses for how this happened. So what's going on with the booster now? It has since been moved to Hangar X for repairs, and Hangar X is somewhere on KSC. I don't think I've ever seen it. I don't think it was built like the last time I was there, which at this point was like four years ago. Hmm. Um, but it's kind of like where they do repairs to uh, these first stages, apparently. So that's not to be confused with... Uh, the horizontal integration facility, right? So that's something different. That's where they just integrate the first stage and the second stage and the payload and all of that. Um, but as far mm. as repairs go, that is at Hangar X. And so apparently that's like a fairly new facility, I think. It maybe popped up in the past year or two, mm-hmm. I think. I like that branding. Just stick an X next to Hangar and it's, it's SpaceX. SpaceX Hangar X. X. <laughs> X is always cool. So they fixed it there, moved it out to... Uh, the pad, and then they did a test fire, moved it back to the horizontal integration facility, and then I think this same booster uh, lifted off for Starlink Group 4-23 last night, it looks like, or maybe like pretty early in the morning, depending on exactly where you are. Uh, successful mission there, so everything went well. And this time it was recovered by um, a shortfall of Gravitas. What's interesting and you know, is that these boosters are actually, I guess they're partially renamed. So mm-hmm. after it's recovered, you just, ha- you just add like a 2 for its second launch and then a 3 and so on and so forth. So now it's, it is being called B-1069-3. Oh. And that's just because it's being prepped for its third launch. And then once they have a successful third launch, it'll be B-1069-4, so on and so forth. And yeah, I think uh, last month we had mentioned that there's at least one that has now flown 13 times, which is just so impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, booster 1051, I think. Actually, there, if I'm reading this correctly, there's two that have flown 13 times. Or three of them that have flown. I'm seeing, at least according to Wikipedia, 1051... Uh, 1058 and 1060, and all are awaiting assignment. 13 launches for three boosters. It's getting there. I mean, I just keep thinking back to, you know, years ago when we were kind of wondering, and I don't even remember, like, my thought, I do remember that my thought was always that probably 10, maybe 20 launches, but not many more than that. But SpaceX was saying, you know, probably something more like a hundred, but looking at how things were going, I'm like, I don't know if that's ever going to really, you know, like if that's just ever going to happen. Yeah. But it's nice to see that they're slowly getting there. Um, Of Mm. course, now we're anticipating Starship, but yeah, that's the story of 1069. And what a story it is. All right, let's do three short and sweets. Dennis, what is the first? Intelsat loses control of satellite. After an anomaly caused by a solar storm, Intelsat has lost the ability to communicate with the geostationary satellite Galaxy 15. Both baseband electronic units are believed to have locked up after the space weather event, which has caused a loss of commanding links, i.e. the signal used to fly the satellite and receive telemetry. While the satellite itself is operating nominally, Intelsat can no longer perform station keeping, which has resulted in the spacecraft drifting east of its 133-degree west slot. A replacement is due to launch in November, but the company hopes to restore control before then, like it was able to when it previously lost control of Galaxy 15 in 2010. All right, and then next up, Starship HLS demo will keep it simple. More details were revealed about HLS at the annual meeting of NASA's Lunar Exploration Analysis Group. Specifically, the demo mission will feature a stripped or skeleton version of Starship for its first journey to the lunar surface. The primary goal of the test is to demonstrate that Starship can take off and land. The landing is scheduled for no earlier than 2024 and will take place somewhere in the moon's southern polar region. It is not yet known whether the site will be one of the 13 candidate landing sites as there are concerns over disturbing the site and interfering with future science that may be carried out there. And finally, Starliner CFT delay. Though December was the original target for Starliner's crew flight test, Sunny Williams and Butch Wilmore won't be flying until February at the earliest. 
earliest. Of course, issues encountered during OFT2 are the cause of the delay. The most likely root cause of the OMAC shutdown is, quote, debris-related conditions. The RCS thruster shutdowns are being attributed to low inlet pressures. It should be fixable in software. The thermal control loop experienced high pressures. The team decided that the loop filters causing the high pressures could be done away with. The VESTA test went well, though it requires data handling updates to the flight software before use. The same valve corrosion fixed for OFT will be used for CFT. The valves will be purged with dry air and periodically opened while at the cape. A long-term solution is being worked on, which includes replacing the aluminum used in the valves. So moving on to this week in spaceflight history, we have a bunch of winners. Uh, we have Uncle Willie, Chris Hoffman, Chris, a.k.a. Steigarfield, Hydrek, Psykyle, and Deathkin. So a lot of people won or got your clue. Several more than mine, which I thought was easier because yours was yours is definitely more interesting. So the clue was, that's no moon. That's some of Huntington Beach's finest work. Like I said last week, I thought of blenders and stuff. That's what I think of when I think of Huntington Beach. Since I've never been there, I just know the name brand. But we 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 learn afterwards that that's actually Hamilton Beach, I believe. Oh, you're right, right Hamilton Beach. But that's the fact that that was the same mistake we had made last week. Where I mean, yeah. Huntington Beach, Hamilton Beach. It's it's not like that was out of left field. That's very yeah. similar. Name. That's like the that's like the knockoff version is Huntington Beach. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Right, we shouldn't count that out. There might be some uh, little. You know, dinky uh, stuff that fell off the back of the truck <laughs> sold under yeah. the Huntington Beach uh, products. But uh, yeah, so I'm guessing this has nothing to do with uh, mixers and cocktail makers and whatnot. So what is this about? Yeah, so this is a uh, this is an astronomy event. I'm just going to ignore spaceflight altogether and talk pure astronomy. So it's September 3rd, 2002, and it was the discovery of the Earth-orbiting asteroid J002E3. And so why are we talking about this asteroid? Well, I'll get to that, and I'll get to the clue. So this asteroid was discovered uh, by Bill Young. Uh, so he's uh, an amateur astronomer. Uh, he was born 1960, still active. This is a uh, super prolific person with a proven track record of discovering not just asteroids, but he's discovered over 2,000 asteroids, has one named after him, but also even discovered a comet, which if you know about the relative amounts of comets versus asteroids, comets are much, much, much harder to find and uh, uh, rarer. And so he actually has a comet named after him. So that's a, uh, a real uh, feather in your cap to have both an asteroid and a comet named after you. And so um, he's, 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 a, he's a Canadian who was uh, born in Hong Kong, and he uses private observatories in the U.S., specifically uh, two in southern Arizona, which is pretty cool. Um, one is to the west of me and one is to the east of me. Uh, so they're in Eloy and uh, Benson, which is right near the border with Mexico, if anybody's familiar with uh, the area. Uh, Bill Young was a discoverer, but it's really cool. Just uh, amateur astronomers always uh, impress the hell out of me. And uh, and so I want to make it clear, too, that this J002E3 was, after the discovery, was recovered and tracked by other people, amateur astronomers around the world, uh, and even a few professional observatories. And so it's always just you know, credit where credit's due. It's always a collaborative thing. The more observations you make, the better you can pin down its orbit and learn more about the the object itself. Now, uh, the reference to that's no moon, well, the reference to a moon is the fact that J002E3 had a geocentric orbit. Okay, so it was orbiting the Earth. Now, something that tiny, right? I mean, the fact that it's uh, was only discovered in 2002 means it couldn't have been that big. Or we would have noticed it by now. And so in that case, well, uh, if it's if it's an asteroid, it must be what's called a temporary satellite. And so there's there's a few of these things. Um, this is something that basically wanders too close to the Earth, 
orbits around it a few times and then gets ejected because it's in an unstable type of orbit. And so this is different than a, a, a quasi-satellite or, you know, one of these ones that look like they're orbiting around the Earth. But in reality, they're both in both the Earth and the asteroid are in heliocentric orbits. It's just an apparent motion that looks like it's going around the Earth. This is talking about something actually orbiting the Earth from the Earth's gravity. And so there's 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 two of these uh, more recently that I, I, I could bring up. So if you want to check out 2006 RH-120 was a piece of rock that was orbiting the Earth from 2006 to 2007. And currently we have one called 2020 CD3, which was discovered, as you can imagine, in 2020 and is still orbiting around the Earth today. But it's unstable and it's going to be ejected at some point. So, of course, right? Couldn't this have been a, a rocket body or something instead? Well, no rockets have been launched any time recently that could have matched uh, its potential trajectory. And so they were thinking, okay, maybe it really is a piece of space rock, a new uh, temporarily captured uh, object, and so really, really cool. And so uh, they did some initial uh, observations in Hawaii at the Infrared Telescope Facility, as well as Mount Bigelow, uh, just outside of Tucson, to get a possible spin rate and orientation. But they uh, then went and got some follow-up spectra. And the follow-up spectra showed features for a combination of white paint, black paint, and aluminum with some infrared, mm. near-infrared features that looked a lot like titanium oxide. Now, when you think of white paint, black paint, and aluminum, I think of Saturn. Yeah, I don't think of <laughs> <laughs> And I, I do not think of space rocks either. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think of space rocks. That's what I think. <laughs> right. So either the aliens were having a, you know, some fun with an art project, or this was, in fact, not a moon. It was some of Huntington Beach's finest work, and it was, in fact, believed to be, for reasons I'll get into, the Apollo 12 S-4B. And mm -hmm. so, Apollo 12 S-4B, which I had mentioned, right, no rockets were launched anytime soon. I don't know the exact window that they went back before 2002 to consider uh, uh, launches in, but, right, this is a... Uh, uh, Apollo 12 was November 14th, 1969. So we're talking a while. In fact, Bill Young was nine years old <laughs> when this launched, <laughs> if you want to put it that way. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that many years in the future, he would be the one to discover it. So this was S4B-507, uh, serial number 507. And uh, not only did, you know, the white paint, black paint, and the titanium oxide serve as a giveaway, but they also compared it to other uh, 60s and 70s rocket body spectra that were taken where you knew what that object was uh, on orbit, or at least uh, leaving Earth orbit, and uh, were able to confirm it that way as well. Now, of course, there were a lot of S-4Bs uh, that were built and flown, uh, so could it have been some of these other ones? Well, the only one that would have roughly worked the best would have been if it came from Apollo 14. But all of the, uh, you know, steps or stages of Apollo 14 were accounted for, including its third stage, its S-4B, which was deliberately crashed into the moon. So unless it, you know, was repaired on the moon and launched <laughs> and then came back in 2002, uh, it couldn't have been Apollo 14. And so that's why this is as uh, good a confirmation as we can get that it is, in fact, Apollo 12's S-4B, but there's always an outside shot. So I don't know, we're talking maybe... I don't want to give a number, but we're talking high Crete instead. It really is uh, Apollo 12s, but it can always be a little off. Some of the interesting uh, stuff that had happened was that they could notice that there was uh, significant radiation pressure because uh, some of the follow-up observations, like I said, this was a lot of people looking at it after its discovery, and it wasn't in the predicted position. 
So it must not have been on a uh, purely Keplerian orbit where it's nice and happily just orbiting around the Earth. Instead, it had noticeable radiation pressure that was causing accelerations on it that were changing its position based on where you would predict it anyway. And so that's something you would get from a white rocket body that's uh, reflecting a lot of uh, sunlight. And then they have, uh, they then, okay, so something you can do after you discover it is you can go and look at, uh, look through what they would call uh, pre-covery images. So you say, okay, well, here's where it is. And based on our follow-up images, this is its trajectory. So maybe the people at uh, the NEAT Palomar NEO survey, um, uh, go look and see if you could have seen this uh, earlier this year and in 2002. And they did and found it in June of 2002. So that helped its baseline um, of its orbit out a lot because now you knew where it was in June as well as its discovery in September and then all the follow-up observations. So that really helps you pin down the orbit the longer of a you know an arc that you can uh, get from multiple observations. And so yeah the, the orbital solution was uh, greatly improved and based on that they couldn't rule out a lunar impact. It actually would have intersected the Earth's orbit a few more times um, but they were pretty sure they were able to be confident though that by one year uh, from that pre-covery image, June of 2003, it would be departing cislunar space and going back out into the sun. And so that's the weird thing about this one, right? So it's been orbiting around the Earth for 30, 33 years and nobody noticed it, right? That's why they figured there were no recent launches. So why would it be, how could it be a rocket body from the 60s? Well, it's because it's in this interesting orbit, as a number of guessers uh, correctly pointed out, that basically switches between modes where it's heliocentric for decades, and then gets captured uh, by the Earth in an unstable formation or in an unstable orbit, cruises around in geocentric and cislunar space for a while, and then gets booted again, like it would in 2003. And so we've got until the mid 2040s until uh, J002E3, uh, aka uh, Apollo 12's third stage, uh, returns to. Uh, Earth. So keep an eye out for that. <laughs> That'll be fun. Um, maybe a, a, a long, uh, long in the future uh, upcoming spaceflight event for us yeah. to <laughs> say in the show. <laughs> That's interesting. So like, are we able to predict that it will come back and be captured by the Earth then or just that it's going to drift into the Earth's sphere of influence? Maybe like how accurately can you predict that it'll go back into some kind of an unstable orbit? Great question, and one that I'm not, I don't know the answer to, but I think, based on what I'd read and the way they kind of phrase things, is that the mid 2040s is the earliest opportunity for it to be mm, recaptured okay. by the Earth. So I think there is a chance that it might not get captured by the Earth in 2040. So, like you say, I think I, they're, I'm sure, looking at just the, the Earth's, you know, hill sphere, its, uh, its region of gravitational influence, and noticing that it'll pass within it at this rate. But that's the tricky thing is that, right, with this, with these additional accelerations acting on it, um, you can't really just run the clock forward and be able to say with certainty, oh, we should expect it like clockwork to be at this point, which we can do for things that are on Keplerian orbits, but to an extent, at least certainly 40 yeah. years out. We know where Pluto will be in 40 years to, to very <laughs> high accuracy, but not this this rocket body. So how, how did it get here? Well, it essentially had uh, an extra long ullage burn, right? Because remember, this is the mm. stage that takes uh, the Apollo spacecraft to the moon. And the idea was for it to boost out into heliocentric orbit, but apparently this extra long ullage burn, right? Ullage burn meaning, right, you, you accelerate the spacecraft so that your fuel is covering the 
uh, the inlet so you make sure that there's nothing but propellant going into your your engine so this uh basically left it without enough uh, uh propellant to be able to get out of there and so that's why it's in this uh, weird uh, geocentric slash heliocentric orbit where it, it's able to escape earth gravity uh to an extent but then eventually uh the earth catches up to it and it gets uh, goes zooming around and people think that it's a it's an asteroid. Yeah. So, so the, before I talk about the Huntington Beach connection, which I think is interesting, and there's some great stories about um, how they manufacture these, which I thought was fun, and we'll have uh, a PDF in the show notes that talks about uh, this in more detail than I'll go into. But this isn't the first time this has happened, and it won't be the last. And so, just a quick rundown of some other interesting objects: six Q0B44E uh, in 2006 was discovered, and this was one of these. Uh, it was orbiting around the Earth, um, but it had a density comparable to essentially uh, uh, used uh, fuel tanks. So it's a little lower density than what the S4B's uh, propellant tank uh, tanks are, but it was in that ballpark where they were like, well, this thing certainly cannot be a, um, a piece of space rock or even ice. Um, and so this is a uh, artificial body, but because of the challenges of running the clock back in time and figuring out where it came from, we don't know what this piece of artificial space debris, uh, where it came from. In 2007, there was the 2007 VN84, and this one was just kind of not really, uh, uh, people didn't really mistake this for something it really wasn't. Um, it was just at the Catalina Sky Survey, which is one of these surveys that's looking for near-Earth objects all the time. It saw this thing and it, boom, and cataloged it. And they very quickly realized, well, no, that's take it out of the catalog. That's Rosetta. <laughs> and so is the Rosetta mission uh, on its way to uh, mm. Churyumov, Grasimienko. And then uh, most recently in 2020, uh, 2020 SO was discovered. And again, using these sort of same techniques of identifying its artificial spectra, they were able to figure out that this one goes back even further in time than Apollo 12. This is actually a Surveyor 2 Centaur from 1966. Yeah. <laughs> so there's there's a whole fun little history of these uh, artificial objects and whether or not, because you're seeing, right, you, you see a dot in the sky and it moves relative to the much more distant stars. And mm. that's how you can tell when you look at large amounts of the sky, whether something is in our solar system or not. And so that's how they discovered the planets initially. That's how we still discover asteroids to this day, as well as discovering rocket bodies to this day. And so, yeah. So as for the Huntington Beach connection, um, this is where the S4Bs were made. Yeah, it's funny. I'm, I, I mean, y'all did a great job with, uh, you know, getting this right. We had six uh, winners uh, with full bonus marks and everything. And I was originally thinking, well, would That's No Moon be enough? Because this isn't a launch or, you know, this isn't a spacewalk or something that's kind of very, I don't know, obviously tied to it. So that's why I threw in that Huntington Beach line. But maybe that uh, was a bit much. But yeah, so the Huntington Beach... Right, is where these S4Bs are made. And um, essentially, uh, so we run back to the 60s, and it was, uh, even before McDonnell Douglas, it was the Missile and Space Systems Division of Douglas Aircraft. And they specifically had been contracted with Marshall uh, Space Flight Center for, this is going to sound, uh, it's funny, as I wrote this, I, I got, it reminds me of the, uh, the, the kind of poem for the Lord of the Rings, about the rings. And so six S4s for Saturn One. 12 S4Bs for Saturn 1B, and then 15 S4Bs for Saturn 5. So that was their contract. Uh, if you add that up, that's 27 S4Bs for the Saturn 1B and the Saturn 5, and then 6 S4s for the Saturn 1. Where the S4 had the uh, the multiple engines, you talked about this during the cluster thruster in the Saturn oh, yeah. 1, during that twisif. 
Yeah. And and like Leon Running Man says in the chat, and one rocket to rule them all. Yeah, you got to cap it off with that. That's perfect. <laughs> yeah. Just uh, a little history, because uh, I mean, we've talked about these before, so I don't want to make this all about the S4B, but just a couple fun little facts and uh, and history coming from Huntington Beach. Um, one, I didn't realize that there was, and this could be that you... Uh, you and Ben had talked about this, and I happened to just miss it or forgot it. But that there was uh, there was a direct heritage from Thor missiles, in particular the the uh, isogrid, that kind of waffle milling pattern, um, was mm -hmm. first done on these Thor missiles, and carrying that over to the S4B was a real important way to to lose uh, to shed weight on your spacecraft while still making it good structurally sound, um, as well as the handling of the cryogenics on Thor missiles. Where in that case, I think it was just the LOX um, was cryogenic, but um, in this case, for the S4B, it was going to be uh, hydrogen as well on there, which yeah, needs to be nice and cool. I would not think that Thor missiles had hydrogen. That doesn't seem like uh, something that you would use for a quick response. Yeah, no, not, not really hydrogen on missiles. Although, I mean, it couldn't have been that quick a response if they had locks. Yeah, I mean, it's easier to load locks. Although, I, I don't know if it was locks uh -huh. either, actually. Yeah, that's a I, good point. I guess, it's, I guess it's the time scale. Like, yeah, you could you could load locks relatively quick. But if you want to fire, like, within minutes because, you know another nation's attacking you, that's that's when you got the hypergals. Yeah, and I think most of them are hypergals or solids for a lot of missiles, depending on what kind of missile. Yeah. So uh, the kind of way that this uh, manufacturing and product line worked is that um, they, they, did the, they did detail manufacturing at Santa Monica, um, and the LOX tank, I believe, was manufactured there as well. And then they would bring uh, it over to Huntington Beach for final assembly and checkout. And then afterwards, they go to Sacramento uh, Test Center for acceptance firings, and then ultimately to the Cape. And uh, there's a couple of fun stories. Like the first time, actually, it sounds like when you wanted to transport the stage, um, I don't know how they got it to Sacramento before uh, uh, the, the guppy uh, that would be able to take it ultimately. Um, and then the guppies would take S4s, and then the super guppy would take S4Bs. But they would carry it there on barges sometimes. And so it sounds like the first time they scooped one of these up from uh, Huntington Beach and brought it to Santa Monica, where they were going to put on a barge to ultimately send it up the Mississippi and get it to the Cape, they're traveling at four miles per hour, which the author references is, and we're thinking that's slow enough that, <laughs> you know, obviously we're not going to hit anything. But sure enough, they managed to run over a skunk. I guess, <laughs> I guess the, 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 just the evolution kind of skipped the skunk. <laughs> Natural selection skipped the skunk. And this, this poor creature wandered into its path, and they didn't realize it until they had already gotten back to Huntington Beach, and it just apparently was just the worst smell ever. And, and, and another thing that they had to deal with when they would have these uh, on barges going up the Mississippi is that, I guess, in the 60s, this was uh, something that would excite a lot of the people along the river or rather would be a fun thing for kids, right? Without video games and all this modern technology. And so they would just throw things at the barge. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Just have fun with that there. However, you know, even though I bring up these kind of silly things, Huntington Beach was described as, uh, quote, in late 1963, we designed and built one of the most modern aerospace plants in the country. And so it was really cool. A lot of the machining and uh, milling equipment there, um, or sorry, tooling equipment was very, uh, very, cutting edge. And then one thing that was not so cutting edge, but ultimately important and kind of the last fun story I want to leave this on was uh, what the author referred to as Project Pigeon Elimination. So they had uh, pigeons inside their, uh, their manufacturing houses. And so uh, how do you get rid of them? Well, they started by just trying to have these loud uh, screeching sirens or something like that that would disturb them. And at first that worked, but then they'd come back eventually. Pigeons are 
uh, very tenacious critters, to say the least. And so then, uh, right, the idea of shooting them uh, indoors uh, certainly was a non-starter, and they weren't going to be doing that. And so they came up with this uh, kind of ridiculous, I think, <laughs> I mean, it sounds ridiculous to me, and I, I, I really hope it's accurate, because otherwise it was just poisoning them, but they came up with these these pellets that they would, you know, essentially feed them in there. They put the, these up in the rafters, I guess, or wherever the pigeons would go. And the pigeons would eat them, and then they would basically kind of go into this semi-catatonic state briefly, and then just fly away and never come back. Hmm. That was the description I got. I hope they weren't just killing these Weird. poor birds. Because I know that, you know, in New York, they, they, they feed, you know, poison to the pigeons there, and that's, I don't like that. But yeah, so they, they, they uh, apparently this was a way to get rid of the pigeons in a, uh, uh, a more humane way, a uh, uh, humane sense, and so yeah, and that worked though. That was the that was the kicker. Most of the time, you would just use like a hawk. You bring a bird of prey in, and that'll chase him off. <laughs> like that's what they do at airports, right? So I hear. Mm. So yeah, so that's uh, so that took you from you know the co- California coast to southern Arizona to the moon to heliocentric space, all over the place on that one. So. But there you go. That is the that's no moon. Definitely not. Yep. Cool. All right. Well, that um that explains that clue. I I get it now. <laughs> <laughs> Next week, the date range is the 6th through the 12th of September, and Ben's not here, so Dennis, do you have a clue for us on his behalf? Yes. Next week in 1982, second of three outcomes, shot before leaving Independence, successfully forded the river, died of dysentery. So that's definitely from Oregon Trail, right? I mean, it sounds like it is. It is talking about dysentery, but I don't know. I know that fording rivers is something you do in that game. Um, haven't played it since I was like six, but okay. So it seems like an Oregon Trail reference. I have no idea what that's a reference to, but if anyone out there thinks that they know, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. Cool. All right. So with that, let's do some upcoming spaceflight events. We have a bunch this week, lots of uh, launches and whatnot. So what's the first? Yep. Kicking off this busy week, we've got a Falcon 9 Block 5 that will be taking Starlink Group 3-4 to orbit. And so this is a batch of 46 satellites, they're saying, at our Launch Library 2, which thank you to Launch Library 2, where we start our research each week. So yeah, so this uh, this Starlink launch uh, is uh, going to be uh, West Coast, flying out of Vandenberg, with a target at 0530 UTC, again on Wednesday, August 31st. On that same day, on August 31st, we have a new Shepard launch, uh, the NS-23 mission, which is not a crew launch, so no people on uh, the NS-23 one. The last one without crew was back in, was last year, I believe. They've done, what? Well, it seems to me like four or five crew launches, or has there been more than that? Six, I believe. Six, okay, six. So NS-23 is going to be the first one after six uh, that has no crew. So this is actually, this is more of a science flight. So this is going to be carrying um, 36 science and research payloads and along with tens of thousands of postcards from Club for the Future, which is a nonprofit founded by Blue Origin. The launch window for that is from 1330 UTC to 1600 UTC. So a nice long launch window. It'll be taking off from West Texas suborbital launch site at Quan Ranch. So, yep, check that one out if you can. And then we've got another Starlink flight. This one, uh, I mean, frankly, it's just more interesting because it's got some extra exciting stuff happening as well. So uh, on Monday, September 5th, we've got another Falcon 9 Block 5. This one will be taking Starlink Group 4-20, and this will be a Cape launch. But 
it is also bringing on board the uh, Boeing's Varuna Technology Demonstration Mission. And so to propel this uh, this uh, Varuna mission is going to be Spaceflight's Sherpa LTC-2 space tug. And so if you remember, there was a thing about Spaceflight's Sherpa uh, flying, I believe, on a, an earlier transporter mission from SpaceX, mm -hmm. and it got bumped. And so now here it is on board a Starlink mission. Very cool. So this, uh, again, is September 5th uh, with the launch at uh, parting 0032 UTC. After that, on September 6th, we have the launch of an Ariane 5 ECA+, which is the uh, cryogenic evolved A-plus version of the rocket, I guess we could say. Um, mm. That would be the English translation, I think. And this will be carrying UTELSAT Connect VHTS. Uh, so this is a large geostationary high-throughput KA band communication satellite. Um, and it's uh, designed to serve Europe with a capacity of 500 gigabytes or gigabits. The uh, launch time for that is at 2145 UTC on September 6th. And as always, it'll be launching from Kourou in French Guiana from uh, Launch Area 3. And then also on September 6th, we've got an event that you can't watch in person, but it's still fun, I think, to know about. And so this is Parker Solar Probe's Perihelion Number 13. And so this is the fourth of seven at this particular orbit, which brings it in uh, quite close to the sun, uh, 9.3 billion meters, which is quite fast. But um, the thing that are quite close, but the thing that always gets me is that speed, 163 kilometers per second, mm -hmm. screaming by the outer parts of the sun, essentially. And so that'll be happening on, on September 6th. Uh, so, you know, just keep that in mind. Parker Solar Probe still doing awesome things. And it's got a few more, like I said, at this one before. It does its sixth Venus flyby next year, next August. And then that will bring it even closer and have it going even faster around the sun. Getting closer and faster, spiraling down the gravity well. Lastly, we have uh, the maiden flight of uh, the RS-1, I think. I'm not sure that's the name of the vehicle, um, which is just what, Rocket Ship 1, right? And this is from ABL Space Systems. So, yep. So this will be carrying two satellites for L2 Aerospace. I don't know much more than that, but this is launching from the Pacific Spaceport Complex uh, way up in Alaska from Launch Pad 3C. So, yeah, uh, this will be pretty cool to see in ABL Space Systems launch just because I like to see these uh, smaller I mean, these launches are always much more exciting to me these days, it seems, you know. Mm. Um, I don't know if anyone feels that same way, but I, I get more excited about companies like this launching stuff than I do maybe Falcon 9s and larger rockets these days. But uh, 22 UTC, so that'll be a, at a good time of day. I think people should be able to watch that if you're anywhere in the States. So those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Um, and with that, let's deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Deathkin, Chubby, Chris, a.k.a. Stye Garfield, Leon Running Man, Calvin Stew, Colin, The Greek, and Delta V for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And if you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. And you can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit we're Orbital Podcast on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com so that's it we will see you all on orbit next week until then later goodbye everybody and see you